Uh, Lord, thank you for what's about to happen. And you call Christian pastors to preach your word in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with great patience and instruction. God, help me to do that now by your grace. I know that I'm not worthy to preach your word, and I know that I have no power in and of myself. And uh, remind me of that now. And Lord, may I depend upon your spirit, and may I depend upon your spirit as I would want to preach your word and not something else. And I would also ask on behalf of everyone else who is listening uh, that you would help listeners to be like the Bereans who are noble-minded, who examine the scriptures to see if these things really are true. I would also ask that you would help those who are here today to listen, to be, as it says in James, quick to hear and slow to speak, that we would be quick to hear your word and by your grace through the, through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, that this would be more than just a talk and this would be more than just listening, that you would break through to our hearts, that you would perform that unique spiritual surgery that you do through your word and by the Spirit, that this would be a profound day where you visit us in a unique way by your Spirit so that nothing would be the same, that our lives would be transformed, that we would love Christ more, and that even our community would be different as a result of what happens during our time. We ask these things for our good and ultimately for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to tell you right now, and I want to say tell you, I realize that sounds bold. If I were to tell you right now that you should love, would that be true? I think that would be true. I think it's pretty safe to say that you should love. Okay, let's ratchet it up a little bit further. If I were to tell you that God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, expects you to love, would that be true? Well, that would be true too. We could go from Old Testament to New Testament all over the place. We could find illustrations. We could go all over the place to establish that reality. You are supposed to love, and you're supposed to love because God says you're supposed to love. I'm supposed to love too. And I could give you some practical do's and don'ts. Uh, I could have a good introduction about how you're supposed to love and a conclusion about how you're supposed to love. And if I were eloquent, I could wax eloquent about it. And yet, I could do all of those things, quoting lots of Bible verses, have it all be true and have, please don't miss this, have it not be necessarily Christian. I could tell you you're supposed to love because God says so. I could illustrate it. I could give you practical tips on how to do it. And it would not necessarily be a distinctly Christian message. And if that were to happen, I think I would be unethical because I'm a Christian pastor. And yet my message wouldn't be distinctly Christian. It would be unethical because when you walked in today, though most of you didn't notice, you probably haven't noticed since the first time you came, outside the sign says Omaha Bible Church. Church, a church is a Christian organization. We're supposed to have a message that is distinctly Christian. And you say, Pat, where are you going with all of this? Today we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about how you're supposed to love and how I'm supposed to love. But just saying that is not a uniquely Christian message. Here's where I'm going. What is distinctly Christian is Christ. Christ who is described as, when he came here and was born, he was described as coming to save his people from their sins. Christ, who obeyed the law perfectly on behalf of us sinners. Why? Because we don't love the way God wants us to love. You see, what we must always remember, especially on a day like today and in days like today, when we talk about how we're supposed to love, supposed to love, supposed to love, supposed to love, that needs to be in a uniquely and distinctly Christian way. We're supposed to love because He loved us first. 
And now out of appreciation, out of gratitude, we want to love, but it's because of Christ that we want to love. Let me put it another way. And I'm going through all this because so many times I just tell you to love, tell you to love, tell you to love, and you say, oh, yes, 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 yes. And all that happens is we sound like we're following moral principles and we're not sounding like Christians. I have no problem saying to people, you must love. Because Jesus tells us that's the essence of the law. I don't have a problem preaching law to people. In fact, it's helpful. How about that? You should love. God requires that you love. And you should love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Are you encouraged? Let me give you practical ways that you can try to do that. Are you encouraged? No. Is that distinctly Christian? No, because the fact of the matter is we don't do it. The fact of the matter is you can tell me all about how I'm supposed to do this. The problem is I, Pat Abendroth, hello, my name is Pat, I have a problem, right? I'm a sinner. And so you can keep telling me what the standard is and you can tell me practical do's and don'ts about the standard, but at the end of the day, I'm just frustrated. And that can be a helpful thing for starters because then we see that we have a need. This is God's requirement. We don't meet the requirement. What do we do? Come up with illustrations? No, because <laughs> then it just leads to more debilitating efforting and it doesn't work. What we do is we point to Christ and we point to Christ again and again and again and again. That's what Paul does in Romans. For 11 chapters, he keeps pointing to Christ. Remember, Jesus is the one who came not to get rid of the law, Matthew chapter 5, but to fulfill the law. What is the law based upon what Jesus said? You summarize the law as love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I hope you see where this is going. I'm trying to be as clear as I can and maybe not doing a very good job of it. We're going to talk about how to love today and the need to love. But I do not, do not, do not, do not want to start and say, you must love, let me give you practical ways. I want to say, you must love, we all know that you don't the way God requires. I don't the way God requires. We need a Savior. And for 11 chapters in Romans, we've been pointed to Christ, pointed to Christ, pointed to Christ. And if you trust in Christ and Christ alone, Christ perfection Perfect law-keeping, obeying the law to love God perfectly all the time and his neighbor as himself, his perfection is credited to us. This is distinctly, uniquely Christian, that we can have Christ's perfection credited to our spiritual bank account so that when God sees Pat Abendroth, even though he's not a very good person when it comes to loving God and loving others, he sees me as if I do perfectly all the time as he sees me having been credited with the righteousness of Christ. This is distinctly Christian, uniquely Christian. This is profoundly Christian. And for 11 chapters, we've learned about it. It is of Christ and his perfect obedience to the law on our behalf. We're trusting in him. And therefore, it's as if we've done it perfectly all the time, even though we haven't. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. 11 chapters. That's a Christian message. And then, having been declared perfect in the eyes of God based upon the merits of Christ, now what do we do? We say, God, what would you have me to do to show my appreciation? God, you've, you've done everything necessary to fulfill the law on my behalf through your son. He is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. I didn't deserve any of this. God, what would you have me to do just to show that I'm thankful? Profoundly so. And then we get to Romans 12.1, where he says, pleading with those of us who are Christians. You know what's your reasonable response to the gospel that, God, that Christ loved perfectly with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself? Now I want you to love out of gratitude. Now I want you to love out of gratitude. Now that you actually have the ability to do it based upon the power of the resurrection, Romans chapter 6. Now I'm belaboring this point because I know what happens. I know what happens. We get to Romans 12 and we forget about Romans 1 to 11. And we start sounding like we're not Christians anymore. We're just committed to moralistic do-gooderism. That's what I like to call it. And it's not Christian. And when you forget the gospel, forget the gospel, forget the gospel, and before you know it, there's no power. There's no inspiration. There's nothing. It's just more rules. 
What I don't want to be this morning is to be the rule giver. The fact of the matter is God has one big rule and you don't keep the rule and neither do I. Christ kept the rule. We trust in Christ. Now what do we do that's reasonable? We want to say, God, not to pay you, but because of what you've done, we, we want to respond with thanks, thankful hearts. We want to worship you. And he does call us to love. So that's where we're headed this morning. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow, that's good news. That's gospel news. If that's true, then God, what would you have me to do? I want you to love each other out of worship to me. That's where we're going this morning. That's the plan. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, he's dealing with love and how we're supposed to love. But he wants us to remember Romans 1 to 11, obviously. So what we're doing is we're looking at Romans 12, 9 to 21. And there are at least 20 commands that have to do with love. Each one somehow is related to love. And I think we can summarize them not in 20, but in about 16, which is what I've done. And we looked at the first four two weeks ago. And we'll look at some more this morning and we'll just keep plotting our way through this. So let's review the first four responses, love responses to the gospel, having heard for 11 chapters about the gospel. Now what are we supposed to do? Well, he wants us to love. Number one, this gospel love is genuine love. Look, look there at verse 12 and you'll see it. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine Another translation says, let love be without hypocrisy. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. I won't take a lot of time, but the idea is without the mask. Okay? If I'm a Christian, Christ died for my sins. He loved me when I was unlovable. It was genuine. It was authentic. He didn't just say he loved me. He actually did something. So now as a Christian, I need to not just say, oh, I love you. I'm a Christian. Love each other. Oh, No, it's more than that. It's genuine. I really am. When I take my mask off, I look the same. When I come off the stage, I look the same. When you take your mask off, you look the same. That you've been so profoundly impacted by the love of God in Christ Jesus that you now are wanting to have legitimate, authentic love that doesn't have some sort of ulterior motive that's ultimately selfish. And so that's the first challenge that he gives us. And people who are smarter than I am when it comes to ancient languages and grammar say that every one of the following commands is an elaboration on this one. And so in this case, I'm taking their word for it. Now we see gospel love. Number two, gospel love is discerning. And we see discerning love in this command. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love is discerning, so it doesn't embrace everything as good in the name of love as is done sometimes. No, that's not the Christian way. We actually do see the difference between right and wrong, what is good and what is not good. You can cross-reference to Romans 12 too. He tells us the will of God is what is good. And so now I love what is good. Well, in the context, I love the will of God. Romans 1, I used to hate the will of God and I wanted my own will because I wanted to be my own God. And now that I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb, now I'm in agreement with God and I say, God, your will is good. I love your will for myself and for others. Number three, gospel love is brotherly. It is brotherly. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. And as I've summarized that before, uh, I think this is a helpful way to do it. There are a few things that I wouldn't do for my brother or my sister. Okay, if they ask me to do something, hopefully it's not too big of a loan, Marcy, since she's here today. (laughs) But she said, I need you to do this for me, then I would want to do that because I'm her brother. Or if my brother Mike said, can you do this for me? I need your help. The natural thing would be to say, yeah, I'll do that because I'm your brother. Well, here we are as Christians addressing a Christian church. And now that we've been spared the wrath of God, we've been given the righteousness of Christ. Now we're saying, God, what would you want us to do? Well, I want you to love each other out of gratitude. I want you to love each other like your family. It's a supernatural kind of thing. Number four, gospel love is competitive, which seems like a contradiction in terms. But I like the way he says it in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. And showing honor, the idea is value. I value myself a lot naturally. That's why I look out for myself. That's how we're wired. Supernaturally now, I actually want to value someone else as more important than myself. And you and I could both be honest and say, that's not natural. Because it isn't. 
What's natural is for me to only love myself. What's profound is to love your neighbor as yourself. And here he's even calling for something more. I'm supposed to outvalue someone else and say, you know what, I want to help you. It's against my natural nature to do it, but because I've been helped so greatly by what Christ has done for me, I'm a different kind of person, and now by God's grace, I'm willing to do something for you that shows that I actually value you more than me. This is how body life is supposed to work. It doesn't always work this way. We'll talk more about that in just a little while. But he's calling for that kind of love. We're to try to outdo each other. Now let's do some some new territory. Let's cover some new ground and we'll look at maybe the next three or four. Gospel love is, I'm trying to keep these to one word. Here's your theological word for the day. Gospel love is number five, Christocentric. Christocentric, your assignment is to use that at the lunch table today at least once. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Christ-centered. Gospel love is Christ-centered. That would make sense in light of the fact that he loved us first, and that's the whole reason why we're showing love. But let's go ahead and see in verse 11 where he says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. He puts those three commands together, and they seem to to all be encapsulated by the ending of the verse. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. And it seems to be the idea as you're serving the Lord. It's all about Christ anyway, and that's where the motivation comes. If I'm only supposed to love you in sort of in isolation, that's not that motivating. But if I'm supposed to love you and I'm supposed to love you passionately and with zeal, but it's all out of service to the Lord seems to be the idea, then all of a sudden we're talking about a different game. Okay, Christ is is now, God has given his son for me. I stand before God with perfect righteousness as far as the standing is concerned. He's given me that kind of amazing, radical love. And now I'm called to love other people who've experienced this. And it should be in somewhat of a similar way. As I'm serving God, as it makes sense now to to respond in love, I want to have a passion to do so. And Paul is calling for that. Don't be slothful in zeal. He's sort of overly deliberate there. He could just say, be zealous. He could just say, don't be slothful. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. So he gives us sort of the double whammy. Don't be a slacker, but be zealous. When it comes to your love, the bigger idea is love. So it's not just, oh yeah, I guess I need to try to help other people because you know, I'm a Christian now. Man, the burden I bear. You know, we all have our crosses. (laughs) No. You've got this radical kind of love that came to us from the Father through the Son. Remember, even the zeal of the Son was to do His Father's will. John chapter 2, I think it is. And He's doing the will of redeeming a lost humanity. Now it makes sense for us to respond and say, You know what? This has been so amazing that you've done this for me that I have a passion. I want to do whatever you want me to do, and I want to do it with, with, with zeal, not as a slacker. In light of the gospel. That's what he's calling us to do. Could anybody accuse you of being a a religious zealot? I know that has really bad connotations, the way we use it. But, But does anybody ever accuse you of being a fanatic? Might be a good sign. Provided it's a fanatic for, you know what, I have been so impressed with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for me, I'm willing to show radical love for other people. Yeah, that Pat, he's cracked up. Ever since he found Jesus, man, he's lost his mind. Might be a good sign. Because I've not not been called to be a slacker in this. I've been called to be zealous. Isn't it kind of interesting where we are in our culture right now? It's okay to talk about being religious as long as it's not about religion. You know, you say, oh, you know, so-and-so, she is so committed to learning her instrument that she practices religiously. Oh, that's so good. Isn't that great? Well, that might be great, and we understand what it's meant. Or so-and-so is so committed to, to his sport, uh, he's, he's, he's the most devout one on the whole team. That's a religious word. Devout? Isn't that good? And then all of a sudden, somebody is saved by the blood of the Lamb through the Lord Jesus Christ, and now they want to serve and they want to honor Christ, and you say, man, I think they might need some counseling. (laughs) You know? 
there's a conference coming to town. XYZ Church is hosting it. I remember years ago there was one in Omaha for people who are addicted to religion. Yeah, I thought, it's kind of interesting. Well, there should be something in you if you're a Christian. It shows signs of addiction. You, have, you need your fix. You, you need an outlet to show service to the Lord Jesus Christ because you're grateful. And it shows up in loving other people. Not slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, he says there. Some have translated that in verse 11. Be fervent in spirit is set on fire by the Spirit. That's a good image. Just on fire to somehow, and in the greater context, is loving. This guy is now all of a sudden on fire, and he loves Christ because Christ loved him first, that he is just all about wanting to love other Christians and love other people. That's a good image. Doused. Here's my question for you in all of this. What's the accelerant set on fire by the Spirit? Man, what's the accelerant that we need to have poured all over us that's going to cause us to be this kind of person or we're not going, yeah, I guess I'll do it. To the point where we're saying, please, I want to do it. I, I want to do the right thing. I think the answer to that question is the gospel. The accelerant is the gospel. Let me show you what I mean so you don't take my word for it. Let's go to Romans 1. Then let's go to Romans 16. And really we're going back to where we started this morning. Here we are, fervent in spirit, set on fire by the spirit or in spirit. We can't really tell if he's talking about this is something that's done as far as you and your human spirit or this is Holy Spirit induced. We can't tell based upon the translation. Either way, it's got to be by the Holy Spirit's doing. But what is going to cause you to be this kind of person? Guilt trip from the pastor? I don't think so. gospel is going to cause this if you're going to be this kind of person who is fired up to show christian love it's got to be the gospel doing it this is really the argument of the whole book i would suggest to you look with me if you would in chapter one verse one he talks about the gospel in that first verse then down in verse seven to all those in rome who are loved by god and called to be saints okay so he's writing to christians he's, this is not an evangelistic letter he talks about the gospel again in verse 9. And then please notice in verse 15. Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, who's the you? The you, based upon verse 7, are the Christians, the saints. Here's how Paul is. They didn't need to be evangelized. They didn't need to get saved again. They're saved people. You know what they needed to do? They needed to grow up in Christ and they needed to learn how to do things like love each other. In fact, at the end of the book, he talks about that. We'll go there in a second. And so what's his solution? Paul's solution is not, I urge you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now let me tell you how you need to love each other. See? He doesn't do that. The Roman Christians need help. They're not living their Christian life as they would be needing to live their Christian life. So what does he do? He doesn't say, let me tell you how to love. No, he gives them the gospel accelerant, if you will, and he douses them with 11 chapters of gospel about how great Christ is and what Christ has done and how you were the enemy of God before, Romans 5. And you didn't do good, Romans chapter 3. You were under the wrath of God, Romans chapter 5 and, and Romans chapter 1. And what happens? God loved you so much, even though you weren't lovely, he himself comes here in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and he does everything everything for you because, hate to say it to insult your esteem, because you're such a sinner. And he goes on for 11 chapters of dousing, 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 dousing. I hope there aren't any sparks around. Then the spark comes. Now respond in thanksgiving and gratitude. And all of a sudden, is what happens. What we need to make sure we don't do, and I don't do as a pastor, and we don't do in our one another's, is just keep telling each other the right thing to do. 
He's telling us the right thing to do after gallons and gallons and gallons of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us, gospel accelerant. Look at the end of the end of the book is the same way, in, in effect. It's not any different. It's the same message. I would submit to you the reason Romans is written is to get the Corinthians, or excuse me, to get the Romans to, to do the right thing and act Christian, like Christians and to be mature. But he does it through impressing them with the gospel first. Chapter 16, verse 25 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen, that's a good synonym for uh, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, to strengthen you. How? More rules, more principles, more illustrations? No. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. How about that? That sort of changes everything. Not sort of, it does change everything. We need to understand gospel. If we understand gospel, then all of a sudden we are moved to love. And that's what's happening here, no doubt, in this passage. Fervent in spirit, on fire, because we've learned so much gospel truth. And then he says at the end of the verse, which we've already covered, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Sometimes we say, well, you know, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I'm just not in a place in my life where I can do that. I just can't serve the Lord in loving other Christians. I'm sure I'll get around to it. Or we whine, yeah, I know, but... Uh... Here's what I don't want to do this morning. I don't want to give you a guilt trip. I'm pretty good at it. I think some people here could testify to the fact that I can give a guilt trip. I don't want to give it a guilt trip. I just do not want to give a guilt trip. I do not want to give you seven good reasons why you should be loving other Christians and serving other people. I'm not doing it. Maybe next Sunday, but not today. <laughs> I mean, there's a place for that. I'm not going to do it. Here's what I'm going to do. Serve the Lord. That's the command in the context of loving other Christians. You need the gospel. No guilt in the gospel. In fact, there's zero guilt in the gospel. The whole point of the gospel is there's no guilt. The whole point is, yeah, we're guilty, but God loves us when we're still sinners, Romans 5, 8, and he gives his son to take away the guilt. So I'm not going to re-harness the guilt. But I am going to say you need gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of gospel dousing. You need to be immersed and submerged in the gospel so that when now God does say, Pat, serve the Lord, be fervent, be zealous. I don't go, oh man, here we go with a guilt trip. I don't do that. That's a sign that I don't really understand the gospel to begin with. See, when we're, we're, when we're understanding the gospel, we're just right by saying, you know what, this is absolutely amazing. I can't believe this. If it weren't coming from God, I could never believe it, that this has been done for me. Just, just what, what can I do to show that I'm, I'm thankful? I want you to love other people. All right, that's it? Let's not do the guilt way. If you're not moved, you're not nervous around... Open flames? <laughs> I just know that you don't quite get the gospel. And so guess what we're going to talk about next Sunday? <laughs> and the next Sunday. And the next Sunday. And the next Sunday. In one way or another. Keep going back there. Keep going back there. Keep going back there. Remember, the Romans didn't need to get converted. They were already converted. But they needed to continue to experience the amazement and astounding effects of contemplating God's matchless love for us in Christ. And we forget about it all the time. We just do. I've mentioned this before, but I think it's with good intention complementing this idea that we celebrate the Lord's Supper again and again and again and again and again and again and again to the point where he says, you do this until I come again. Yeah, but we already understand the gospel. We already prayed the prayer. We're Christians. Help us to move on. Give us some principles. 
(laughs) The principle is, I want you to be impressed with my atonement. And I know you're going to be apt to forget it. I am apt to forget it. Therefore, I'm apt to slip into, let me give you principle mode and guilt you into doing something. Instead of lifting high the cross of Christ. And you say, if you do that, people won't ever do anything. You got to give them some guilt. <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Some people do well under guilt. And in the end, it's just crash and burn because it's just legalism. And there's ultimately no power in that. How many points did I say we we're going to do today? <laughs> one, one more thing about this, because some of you are totally getting it. I think and some of you aren't before we move on to number six. Go back and read Romans 1 to 11 and see how bad it is. Okay? I realize this isn't what pastors are supposed to talk about today because if you talk about sin, people won't come back. So I'm not going to talk about it. You just read it yourself. (laughs) You read Romans 1, 2, and 3 and you'll want to be on antidepressants. Okay? It's bad. Really. Really, really bad. Desperate bad. And God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <gasps> Amazing. I'm thinking of like, I think it's Psalm 7, where the psalmist talks about how God has drawn His bow. You know what? I'm looking at the arrow. All I can see is a dot because I'm looking straight at the arrow. And God would be righteous and just and holy if he released the bow or released the line. I deserve condemnation and damnation and so do you. That's Old Testament and New Testament. Couldn't be clearer. And what does God do? He sends His Son to stand in the way of the arrow, so to speak, to satisfy His just requirement. Not a perfect illustration, but a biblical illustration. You see, when we start to grasp that we're guilty before God, we deserve condemnation, we are not good people who do good things, then the gospel makes sense, and then all of a sudden I'm ready to say, God, what, what might I do to worship you? Well, I want you to love other people. Okay. All right. Some of you get this. Some of you don't get it. I'm just going to keep preaching it. Keep lifting high the cross. And that's what will lead to the ultimate change. All right, let's move on. Number six, gospel love is anticipatory. Another big word capturing the whole idea it anticipates the future gospel love is anticipatory and we can see this in verse 12 let's go ahead and look at it where it says in verse 12 rejoice in hope hope has to do with the future so it's anticipating something be patient in tribulation patience has to do with waiting through something so it has to do with the future be constant in prayer because it's linked with the other two it seems to go together it's talking about getting through something or so it would seem Bigger context is love. What are we supposed to do in the midst of loving each other? Well, first, there on that list of commands in verse 12, rejoice in hope. How does that relate to love? I'm supposed to love you. You're supposed to love me. We're supposed to love each other. We're supposed to function as a church, as the body of Christ, putting up with each other because we're not perfect yet. We just have a perfect Savior. Rejoice in hope. Well, when I'm not doing so well in my sanctification and you're trying to help me by loving me, and I'm still not doing so well, and you're trying to do the right thing by loving me, and you keep pouring love out in my life, and I'm still not responding the way I should, that could very easily steal your joy. And you go, ah! And I think what he's getting at is you rejoice in hope. We've already learned about hope in Romans. Hope is a secured future because of the work of Christ for all those who would ever believe. Like in Romans chapter 8, he unpacks these great realities of this kind of hope. The reality of it is this. I, if I'm really a Christian, most certainly, absolutely, no matter what, will end up being glorified someday. 
And so as you're pouring into my life loving me and I'm not responding so well, you don't just chuck it all and throw it in and lose your cool and say, forget it, I quit. I have no joy in my life. What you keep remembering is those realities like in Romans chapter 8, that he, God, who starts by foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, is also the God who glorifies. So I can keep loving these unlovely people at Omaha Bible Church. Can you believe them? I have no joy. (laughs) I can have joy because God has already guaranteed what's not even done yet in their life. That really is helpful, by the way, when you're ministering to other people. You think they're not where I am. Well, you know what? You're not where others are. Philippians 1.6, I mentioned it earlier probably in praying because it's on my mind, that he, God, who began a good work in you will be faithful to perfect it. This is very helpful as we love each other. Because what I tend to think of is I'm ahead in the game and you're behind in the game and it doesn't seem like you're really keeping up and I'm getting really frustrated because I keep pouring out love and you're not doing anything right. Or vice versa. You think you're ahead in the game and you keep doing the right thing and loving me and I keep stumbling. You got to keep remembering. Keep loving. Rejoice in hope. Hope of a certain absolute future because of what Christ has done. Read Romans 8. Unpacking this a little bit more. It's anticipatory. Be patient in tribulation. All right. Love is patient. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that. So amidst the heartache and amidst the hard stuff that is going to happen, we know that it's going to happen. There's patience. Pat is not where I think Pat should be. But if Pat is a Christian, I know God is not going to stop working in his life. And so I can be patient as God was patient with me. And then when he says at the end there, be constant in prayer. Obviously, we're depending upon God to do these things. We endure in the midst of the struggle. We're not going to go there, but in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 to 27, he links endurance and prayer together. As we endure with each other, as we're trying to love each other, we're praying for each other, knowing that only God can do the work. So to summarize that, it's anticipatory. Maybe we could summarize it this way. As we're trying to love each other and we're not doing so good at times, people aren't responding, just remember the future's already written. Just remember that we're rejoicing in hope. How about this? Remember it does end well for all those who are truly Christians. So as we're dealing with each other and our issues. I got to know that it ends well for you if you're a Christian. And you got to know that it ends well for me if I'm a Christian. So let's keep slugging it out. <laughs> let's keep loving each other even though when it's hard because it is going to end well. And I think that would capture the idea of what he's emphasizing even here. If, this is not a biblical illustration, but it might be helpful. A lot of times I think about life like a roller coaster. And uh, it's because of this. You get on this thing, and you might throw up. (laughs) Okay? I remember the Orient Express before they tore it down at Worlds of Fun. Going there the first time, opening season, man, it's scary. I'm a little kid, probably cried. Probably my brother and sister made me do it. I'm still in counseling about it. But anyway, (laughs) I remember going, it was daunting. And you're going to the Orient Express, and, and there you go. Click, 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 click. And you are about ready to need a change of clothes. I mean, it's scary. You get up to the top, and then they do a little dip just to mess with you. And then <laughs> there might be tears. And then you go screaming down the giant drop, screaming. Some people are crying. Some people are doing all kinds of things. But, you know, once in a while, you put your hands up. A little bit of fun. And then all of a sudden, whiplash in a turn, upside down, crazy. But you know how it ends. 
Now, the illustration could break down because there are fatalities. But anyway, <laughs> that supports a different theology. <laughs> In general, it's a good illustration. Because you're going to have ups and you're going to have downs and there are going to be tears and there might be some other unpleasantries. But because of Christ, you know how it ends. And you end safe and secure getting off saying, now what should we do? What's for lunch? In that sense, it's not a big deal because you know how it ends. Because of what Christ has already done, we've learned this in Romans again and again and again, speaking in past tense terms, not only based upon His work being done, finished, His work in our lives is even spoken of as done, finished. Romans, Romans 8, 29 and 30. And so as we're trying to love each other in gratitude to God for loving us first, and we're facing the ups and the downs. For Christians, we know how it ends. And so this should help us to find ourselves being willing to love yet another day. Let's move on to just doing one more. Gospel love. Gospel love is giving. Gospel love is giving. Verse 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Two good ways of saying You should give. Contribute to the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Both acts of giving. Hospitality probably looked a little different in first century. We know that it did. At every exit on the freeway or the interstate, there wasn't a Motel 6 or a Days Inn or whatever. It was very common to be able to have people staying in your home because they're traveling somewhere. And so hospitality no doubt looked different. They did have inns back in the day because we know there was no room at the inn. But it wasn't like it is today. It was much more common. But nevertheless, we still show hospitality, which is an act of giving of yourself. So the needs of the saints, people have a need. You want to meet the need now that you're a Christian. And it's an act of love. You want to pour into their life and it's going to cost you something. Gospel love is giving love. It costs you something and you're willing to help somebody else. Naturally, I'm not that kind of person. Because naturally, I want stuff for me because then I have more pleasure. That's just how we're all wired. And even when I am willing to give, at times I'm willing to give because what I might get in return in the end. I do that all the time. Now, as a Christian, something radical has happened. God has given me, as I like to remind you, the one thing that costs God anything. There's only been one thing that's ever cost God anything, and that's giving of His Son. He has given us abundantly and graciously, to use a biblical word, He's lavished His grace out on us. It would be natural now, supernatural for us, to be giving kinds of people. All right. I'm greedy by nature. I like to hoard my stuff. And when I give you some of my stuff, I have less pleasure. That's just how we are. But as Christians, something has happened. We've received this amazing gift, and so now we see how amazing it is for God to give us something. We become givers. Something clicks. Something changes. I do like it the way he says... uh, Seek to show hospitality. In one sense, I don't like it because it might make me feel guilty. But it's not just be hospitable when someone comes knocking. Seek to show hospitality. Man, that's not the old pad. Not only should I want to be hospitable and help somebody, but I'm actually looking for opportunities where I can help somebody else because I've been so greatly helped. That's pretty radical. And I'm not saying that I've arrived, and you know that I haven't arrived, and neither of you, but now something has happened where now we become people who want to give. It's an act of love. It's an act of love toward other people. Maybe this helps. Christian giving isn't guilt giving. Christian giving is grace giving, gospel giving. I've experienced grace, now I want to show grace. It's interesting, even in the elder qualifications, like in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy, one of the qualifications is, shows hospitality. 
I'm more and more convinced by reading through those accounts that since it's all about the gospel anyway, the reason the church leader needs to be hospitable is because they have experienced the gospel. They become a gospel person, and now they show their discovery of the gospel, if you will, by being a gospel-giving kind of person. They're now hospitable. Who do you want to lead your gospel movement? People who have experienced the gospel and people who are showing the fruit of the gospel. They're hospitable, but not by guilt, but because of the gospel. I'm going to use a similar application here as I did before. I'll say, you should give. Man, you've heard that in church before, I'll bet. (laughs) The Lord has given me a word of knowledge, and you're supposed to... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You should give. But I'm not going to give you a guilt trip about giving. Be counterproductive in the long run. Yes, I could say, here's principles. There's probably a brochure out there that talks about principles for biblical giving. We could do that, not doing it today. You should give because of the gospel. That's all. And the more I understand the greatness of Christ, and the more I understand the greatness of his gift to me, because I wasn't deserving, but he gave to me anyway. He gave his life for me. You know what? That has an impact on me, and I'm transformed. And you know what? Now I find myself being a giver instead of having it just be what's in it for me kind of thing. It really does change things. It changes everything. Some of you give out of guilt. I want to say stop giving, but I'm nervous. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? Stop giving out of guilt to help other people, whether it's in a formal offering or in helping someone one-on-one. Don't do that because that's just what Christians are supposed to do. In one sense, that's true, but how about not assuming the gospel and how about not forgetting the gospel and how about getting doused with gospel accelerant and being so impressed with the Lord Jesus Christ that actually it is what you actually want to do? It makes it totally different, totally different. Some of you might be thinking, I wouldn't be saying that kind of stuff, Pastor, because that might lead to bad things. You know, in the long run, it's better. In the long run, it's better to say it is about the gospel. But if you tell people that, they're just going to live however they want and they're not going to follow any rules. No. That's what we're learning in Romans. All of grace, which leads to transformation which causes us to want to do the right thing, but for the right reason as acts of worship. We're going to have to keep doing this. We're going to have to keep coming back to this because we see again and again and again in my life and in your life, we by default mode just fall into the trap of just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Instead, it's just tell me what Christ has done. Just tell me what Christ has done. Just tell me what Christ has done. Pastor, would you please tell me the gospel yet again? Oh, God's love for us is amazing and glorious. I want to do the right thing. Changes everything. I know, and I mentioned this already, and I'll end on this. I know some of you don't get this. I know some of you don't. Some of you do. Some of you are like, I totally get this. This makes sense to me. It's gospel, gospel, gospel. Leads to transformation. Leads to spiritual growth. And some of you don't get it. But I'm not going to give you a guilt trip. (laughs) I'm just going to keep giving you gospel. Until by the grace of God you get it. And then everything changes. But I know some of you don't get it because when I talk to you about the gospel, you change the subject and want to talk about something else. kind of like, yeah, 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 I know that. And I'm thinking, no, 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 you don't. Paul has to tell Timothy in 2 Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. What did he need? He needed to remember the gospel because we easily forget. 
So we've got to come back to it and come back to it and come back to it. And you know we're never going to exhaust it. That's why we can talk about propitiation, the satisfying of the wrath of God, that aspect. We can talk about God's great justifying work in the Son that we're declared righteous even though we're not. We can talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness being credited to us by virtue of what He's done. We can talk about sanctification that comes as a result of what Christ has done in our life, which is fruit of the gospel. And we can talk about reconciliation through the gospel, that we were at war with God and we're not anymore. And we can talk about all of these amazing, amazing realities that have happened on our behalf through Christ and we'll never, ever, ever, ever exhaust it. I love Christ and the gospel more than ever. I know more than ever that I don't understand Christ and I don't understand the gospel. And so I want to keep going there and keep going there and keep going there. If you're feeling guilty because you're not doing the right thing, which would apply to all of us in one sense. Try this this week. Read your Bible looking for the gospel. Read your Bible looking for how you're not guilty if you're in Christ. You say, but I read my Bible because I feel guilty. Stop it! Read your Bible looking for how in Christ you're not guilty. You are the righteousness of God in Him. And then all of a sudden, you're part of a different religion. It's not moralistic do-gooderism. You're part of the religion called Christianity where Christ did it all and now you're grateful and you want to do the right thing. And oh yes, the spiritual disciplines do come, but those spiritual disciplines just become legalism in our kinds of churches when we forget the gospel. So I plead with you and I plead for you. This would be the best thing to ever happen to Omaha Bible Church or to happen to me or to you, and that would be that we wouldn't assume the gospel. Changes everything. Changes absolutely everything. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for our time together. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we easily forget him. Thank you that you've given us reminders and you've given us means to recovering the gospel. And Lord, may we be gospel people who speak much of Christ, that we speak much of his great saving work, that we would find ourselves indeed loving each other, indeed sacrificing for each other giving to meet one another's needs and needs for ministry. But this would come as a result of this amazing work of Christ that should be everything to us. We want it to be everything to us. So impress us with our lack of guiltiness in Christ so that we might find ourselves wanting to serve and wanting to honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.